relationship, murder, yes, divorce, never. <laughs> I, am, I am always pleased to be uh, back in Oxford. It is the city where I grew up. Uh, my mum worked in the Churchill Hospital and my dad worked at, at British Leyland on the um, production line at Cowley. Uh, and following a disastrous experience of serving at table in a college, uh, this is the place I first joined a union. <laughs> and I'm always very conscious of uh, when people talk about British Leyland and the 70s and so on, when my dad was a steward here, that was the time I still have a copy of the report that the stewards across the car industry produced in the mid-70s that was arguing for investment in the development of electric and hybrid cars. <laughs> Mad militants, said. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you this evening about where next for Labour and the trade union movement and what we can learn from Clement Attlee and that great 1945 government why the post-war consensus it established broke down, and about how both Labour and unions can learn lessons from the past and forge a new ideological settlement for post-crash Britain. And the argument I want to put to you is this. If we're going to build a future that works for all, then both sides of the Labour movement will need to change. For the party, there has to be a decisive break with new Labour managerialism. 
the notion that deregulated markets can somehow be given a human face. And for us in the trade unions, there can be no retreat into a comfort zone of narrow sectionalism or oppositionism because our long-term viability ultimately rests on our capacity to shape a new economy, not from the sidelines, but from within. Uh, With the general election now just two years away, an election that could be as seminal as 1945 or 1979, this is a very good time to be having this discussion. The past few weeks have been dominated, of course, by the death of Margaret Thatcher, and there have been efforts to rerun battles and rewrite history with a fierce debate about her legacy. But as political commentators of all stripes acknowledge, she was one of only two post-war prime ministers to change Britain (coughs) and the world in profound ways. The other, it hardly needs saying, was Clement Attlee. Uh, A few weeks ago, I went to see uh, Ken Loach's documentary film, Spirit of 45. Uh, Appropriately enough, I went to see it in the East End of London. And you couldn't help but be uplifted by just how great the achievements of that time were. And cinematically, it's uh, quite a beautiful film, and in parts, deeply moving. Uh, John Cruggers, who gave the inaugural Attlee um, lecture, spoke about Labour's romantic tradition, and I think much of the film spoke to that. Although for Ken Loach, the line between romanticism and nostalgia can be a thin one. For example, um, the film glossed over the extent to which Reconstruction depended on cheap immigrant labour from Ireland from the Caribbean uh, in particular, although of course the state's preference was for ex-POWs from Germany and Italy. And there was prejudice too. A 1948 government committee expressed the concern that colonial labour might find the unemployment benefits so generous they might not bother to seek work. Sound familiar? (laughs) Uh, The film, in my view, also uh, failed to fully explore the role of women, both in building and benefiting uh, from the New Jerusalem, with women contributors largely consigned to offering testimony rather than analysis. Uh, But what the film did convey was our capacity, through collective action, to really change things. That's something Clement Attlee discovered soon after studying here at University College Oxford when he worked with children from the slums in the East End, uh, the type of experience perhaps which a few of today's ministers could learn a thing or two from. There, Attlee realised that charity, however generous, could not alleviate poverty, let alone tackle inequality, that only by harnessing resources of the state could social reform be achieved? And it was this insight that inspired one of the great political careers of the 20th century. But I think two forces shaped the Attlee government above all else. First, an overwhelming desire never to go back to the stagnation and mass unemployment that characterised much of the 1930s. After the sacrifices of the war, ordinary people simply wouldn't stand for it. 
And second, the positive experience of the nation pulling together between 1939 and 45, working class and middle class, men and women, industry and unions, to defeat fascism. Unity that was facilitated by a strong, active state. The headline achievements of that great government are well known. The creation of the NHS, the welfare state, putting the beverage report into practice, fuller, if not full, employment, over a million new homes built fit for heroes, mainly council homes, and the nationalisation of strategically important industries. And all delivered, remember, at a time when Britain was on its knees after the war, when our debt uh, to GDP ratio was over 200%, far, far higher than now, and much higher than the 90% ceiling erroneously propagated by today's advocates of austerity. But just as important in their own way are the other things that Appy did. The fair wages resolution, sick leave for workers, compensation for the victims of asbestos, better working conditions for miners, dockers, seafarers, the right to join a union for workers in firms awarded government contracts, the determination to end rural poverty and exploitation through the creation of an agricultural wages board. Both in its broad brush strokes and in its fine print, the Attlee government set out the contours of a new social democratic Keynesian consensus that lasted for a generation, and that changed Britain for the better. That post-war settlement is always said to have run out of steam at the end of the 1970s, but there was nothing automatic about the UK's path. Indeed, the working together spirit helped us absorb some of the oil shock in the mid-70s, and the social contract managed to both bring down inflation and limit unemployment. It's a testament, in fact, to the strength of the post-war settlement that Mrs Thatcher's most powerful criticism of Labour was that they had allowed unemployment to go over one million a figure that soon came to be seen as nostalgic. Of course, the victors always get to write the history, and the 1970s get a bad press today. But even allowing for all the strife, we shouldn't forget that it was the most equal decade that Britain has ever known, a period when ordinary people shared in economic growth. And while the social contract broke down, that was by no means inevitable and was as much to do as ministers not being flexible enough as with shop floor frustration. Remember, too, that the UK's experience under Thatcherism was not universal. It's true that Britain embraced free markets, privatisation, uh, banking and finance deregulation with an ideological zeal that was rivalled only by Reagan's America. Unions were systematically marginalised, the profit motive reigned supreme. And if that involved a bit of creative destruction along the way, then it was a price worth paying. But most of Europe, from Mitterrand's France to Cole's Germany on the right, took a very different course. Yes, other countries experienced industrial restructuring, 
but it was more planned and less painful, better managed and kept more manufacturing capability. Inequality was not allowed to rocket out of control. Rather than tax cuts for the rich, there was investment in infrastructure for the future. So why did Britain, like America, embrace the neoliberal model with such gusto? Why was the Conservative government here able to rip up Atlee's post-war settlement apparently so quickly and so easily? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, but for me, our business culture offers one compelling explanation. While unions have never been as strong in the uh, individualistic ethos of the states, union density in the UK was at its highest in 1980. Arguably, unions in this country were reaping the consequences of a strategic error made in failing to seize the opportunity of the European model of co-determination and industrial democracy. Now, Ernest Bevin was acutely aware of the German system, uh, not least because as foreign foreign secretary, he was uh, largely responsible for creating it. Uh, But it didn't happen here. In 1945, we had an important opportunity to lift our gains as unions beyond the immediate task of improving terms and conditions and play a different, bigger role within the emerging mixed economy, giving workers a voice and a stake in strategic decision-making in the newly nationalised industries and the new welfare state. But it was one that, in my view, we squandered. Rather than rising to the profound challenge of collective ownership, not just redistributing power to workers, but also to those who depended on the goods and services we produced, we chose instead to take the easy option. Uh, The historian Martin Francis wrote, union leaders saw nationalisation as a means to pursue a more advantageous position within a framework of continued conflict rather than as an opportunity to replace the old adversarial form of industrial relations. Moreover, most workers in nationalised industries exhibited an essentially instrumentalist attitude, favouring public ownership because it secured job security and improved wages, rather than because it promised the creation of a new set of socialist relationships within the workplace. And it was this strategic failure that led eventually to the breakdown of the social contract, the subsequent winter of discontent, and the Thatcherite counter-revolution. All disasters, both for the Labour Party and for trade unions. Our desire to rely purely on shop floor power (coughs) in order to avoid the charge of co-option proved insufficient when we faced mass unemployment and growing inequality. Legal changes that reduced union influence didn't help either, though in my view they were secondary to the economic onslaught. With no institutional stake and a collapse in our bargaining power, we were no longer part of the solution and instead we were easily and systematically vilified as the problem. Mrs Thatcher set out to drive a wedge between unions and communities. Because unions were seen as the last line of defence of collective values that she despised and an obstacle to unfettered free markets, 
She didn't always succeed, but a, a series of Union industrial defeats showed how our limited toolkit couldn't cope with the new world. Despite valiant efforts, too often we proved unable to defend our <coughs> members, let alone our communities, who in fact often rallied to our aid. The argument against Mrs Thatcher was not one against change per se, but that she left in her wake a huge trail of social and industrial destruction, something that she was able to hide to some extent uh, thanks to the big stream of new cash from North Sea Oil and the far sale of public assets through privatisation, neither of which, of course, were used for investment in the future. Into that gap came the bubble economy where people prospered not by making things but by speculating in the property and financial markets. Self-evidently, this economic restructuring reduced union membership and so influence and marked the beginning of that slow erosion of living standards. But it also had a big impact on our politics. Now, it was always a caricature that Labour won elections purely on the union vote, but undoubtedly, organised Labour was the biggest component of Labour's electoral support from the end of the war to the 70s. That's why, exactly why, the political right was so keen to divide non-union members against union workers, uh, just as they try to divide public sector and private sector workers today. But the truth is that unionisation lifts all workers. It's no coincidence that when unions were at, their, at the peak of their powers in the mid-70s, the share of GDP going to wages stood at 65%. Today, with just one in five workers in the private sector holding a union card and collective bargaining coverage uh, uh, protecting less than a third of the total workforce, that share of total wealth is barely 50%. Union-led campaigning also won important rights like the minimum wage, pension rights, health and safety protection, and uh, the right to a weekend. Uh, Deunionisation avoids the inconvenience of all that. But the right success in making unions a political problem, even while we retain support for our representational and industrial role, has turned Labour's traditional alliance with us into a challenge. New Labour responded with um, various strategies, including triangulation. Uh, Tony Blair ran against old Labour as much as he ran against John Major. As my predecessor, but one John Monks once said, unions were sometimes treated as embarrassing elderly relatives. With union members desperate for change in the run-up to 1997, that caused few problems. And of course, Labour won a huge majority in 97. Polling evidence suggests that the great British public um, had already made up its mind to put Labour in number 10, in fact, when the party was led by John Smith. But New Labour's narrative was that of distancing itself from the unions and that, and that that was a necessary ingredient for success. 
but it also stored up problems as it took traditional supporters for granted rather than actively building an electoral coalition. Triangulation can only ever be a tactic. It can't work as a strategy, as no party can continually run against its own past and its own values. And of course, we know now that Labour's valiant attempts to bolt social justice on top of the neoliberal economic model, a sort of humanised Thatcherism, if that's possible, would end in tears when the bubble burst. Even after 13 years of Labour government, even after the convulsions unleashed by the collapse of Lehman Brothers, Britain's rabid model of financial capitalism survives to this day, essentially unchanged. As the Labour leadership now recognises, it's an economic system that simply isn't fit for purpose. Too much power, wealth and influence is concentrated in the hands of too few. And in this post-crash world, the problems are plain for all to see. A tiny elite at the top continue to prosper regardless, while real wages for workers are back to the levels they were 10 years ago. Bankers trouser huge bonuses, while lending to small businesses dries up. Corporations avoid a fortune in tax, while our public services are slashed. Property developers rake it in, while millions of people in this country still lack a decent home. Be in no doubt, the bill for this free market free-for-all is enormous. Today, taxpayers spend billions subsidising employers who pay poverty wages. Billions more go on to housing benefit, ending up in the pockets of private landlords. Uh, But in a sense, even all of that is just the proverbial tip of the iceberg. As the coalition government undermines the benefits of millions of people, multinationals gain from what can only be described as corporate welfare on an epic scale. Uh, Subsidies to privatised rail operators now far exceed those ever paid to British Rail. Companies such as G4S and Serco are paid a king's ransom to run outsourced public services with limited evidence of value to the taxpayer. And many of our banks, heralded during the boom as models of private sector efficiency and innovation, continue to survive on massive taxpayer bailouts. The Thatcherite right always liked to castigate nationalised industries such as coal, steel and indeed British Leyland for their reliance on handouts. But the reality is they enjoyed a fraction of the public largesse now lavished on our banks. The masters of the universe in the city are always very quick to dismiss state subsidies, except that is when they're the beneficiaries. What we have today is a model of capitalism that privatises gains and socialises losses. Capitalism, of course, has succeeded in reinventing itself time and time again. It's been said that the first phase of modern capitalism was profiting from manufacturing and industry, the second was profiting from finance, and the third, where we are now, is profiting from our public realm. 
Back in the early 80s, Margaret Thatcher said, how odd it would be to future generations that the likes of Pickford's or the Glen Eagles Hotel were nationalised. And yes, in some respects, she had a point. But if anybody had told us back then that our railways, swathes of our NHS, and many of our schools would be privatised, then frankly, I think they'd have been marched off by the men in white coats. And that's a measure of how profoundly Thatcherism has changed Britain, how the economic centre of gravity moved so far to the free market right. But with that model failing, the vast majority of people in Britain today, the case for a paradigm shift is overwhelming. If Labour wins in two years' time, its job will be to build a new political economy. And if a future Miliband government is to avoid the sclerosis that has afflicted the Hollande presidency in France, the groundwork for that transformation needs to be laid now. Some of of the intellectual heavy lifting has already begun. The focus on responsible capitalism, the idea of pre-distribution, putting human relationships at the heart of public service modernisation... But I think we still have the challenge of turning that sometimes wonkish uh, terminology into a popular, dare I say, even populist agenda to put to the country in two years' time. So today's Labour Party faces a big challenge, and admittedly not as great as recovering from a world war as in the Atlas time, but still huge. And we need also to be alert to the powerful interests that stand in the way of progress. Those who benefited from the neoliberal era have not gone away, and many are keen to see a return to business as usual. Many in the current government seem to have retreated into their own default position of denial, denial uh, of inequality, uh, that deregulation and letting markets rip were in any way causes of the crash. Instead, they want the same old policies, but even more of them. So that's why we need to be bold in winning our battle of ideas, setting out our alternative vision for post-crash Britain. As Ed Miliband rightly said in a speech to Scottish Labour last week, we need a brand new settlement to heal economic and social divisions, a new start comparable to the change offered by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s and Clement Attlee in the 1940s. The difficult bit, of course, is how we achieve all of this amidst austerity, with public finances in a mess and the costs of social democracy rising in an ageing society. But for the TUC, none of this ought to preclude radicalism. The central lesson of the Atli government is that even when times are tough, especially when times are tough, great things can be achieved. We may be in a crisis, but remember crises often offer a genuine opportunity for change. Just after Atli died in 1967, Harold Wilson uh, remarked that, quote, Fainter hearts than his would have used the nation's economic difficulties as a reason for postponing social advance. He felt, on the contrary, that the greater the economic difficulties, 
the greater the need for social justice. And the same is true today. So what would that bold vision look like? Well, in the short term, I share Labour's conviction that we need an alternative to austerity. With yesterday's GDP figures underlining the chronic weakness in our economy and even the IMF uh, accusing the Chancellor of playing with fire and saying it's time to rethink, I think the case for change is clear. Even in its own terms, austerity is failing. Deficit reduction targets will be missed by a country mile, borrowing over 200 billion higher than expected, and of course we recently lost our coveted AAA status twice. The Chancellor likes to tell us that unless we deal with our deficit, then we won't have growth. But as economic history has repeatedly shown, most notably in the post-war period, it's the reverse that is true. Unless we get growth, then we won't be able to pay down our debts. That's why the TUC has been calling for investment in jobs and growth, reflecting the fact that interest rates on our sovereign debt are not only at historic lows, but actually below inflation. We want a fairer balance between spending and tax. We want a proper clampdown on tax avoidance by the super-rich and corporations. And we want a financial transactions tax on the city too. In the long term, though, our task is to build a new and very different economic model. One that works for ordinary people in all parts of Britain. We need an economy that's fairer, because in place of spiralling inequality, we need just rewards for all. A living wage, fair wages, set by modern wages councils, a new duty on companies to report pay ratios, worker representation on the remuneration committees that set top pay. We need an economy that's greener, because in place of environmental degradation, we need a bold plan to decarbonise Britain, a strategy to deliver green skills, jobs and industries in the regions that need them most. Investment in emerging technologies uh, like clean coal, financed by a proper green investment bank. And a bold vision for world-class public transport, integrated, affordable, publicly run. And we need an economy that's stronger, because in place of free market fundamentalism, we need an active, intelligent role for government, a smart industrial strategy to rebalance our economy, nurturing new sources of manufacturing strength, with the creation of decent jobs at its heart. A state investment bank to provide funding for new infrastructure and industrial development, fundamental reform of the banking system so that we have banks that serve us and not just themselves. Above all, economic strength demands economic democracy, a recalibration of the relationship between labour and capital. New models of corporate governance that empower all stakeholders, not just shareholders. Greater worker and union involvement in corporate decision-making, as in Germany. New institutions to promote, uh, to promote pre-distribution, otherwise known as collective bargaining, so that wages start rising once again. 
and we get away from the debt fueled growth that led to the crash. I could go on, but I think you get the picture. Obviously, much of this chimes with what Labour has been saying over the past few years under Ed's leadership. And we in the trade unions want to work with Labour to turn this from an attractive theoretical proposition into practical uh, political reality, to move away from that American Wild West-style capitalism towards best practice in Europe, the equality of Scandinavia, uh, the collaborative industrial culture of Germany, and perhaps the quality of life, but you can fill that one in for yourselves. <laughs> um, so what in practice does all that mean for labour and unions? I'll start with the union side, because I think we need to be smarter and we need to be realistic about what we seek from a new settlement. Much as some would like um, Labour, a future Labour government, to be like a videotape that we run backwards undoing all the coalition policies we dislike, we have to recognise that we're going to be in a very difficult and different starting point. Of course we need to undo the damage done by this government and by the crash, but there will need to be new thinking and a recognition that not everything is going to be achieved at once. Now, that doesn't mean that we or Labour should be timid about what we seek. We know that even with an end to forced austerity, there will no longer be the illusory resources generated by the financial bubble. But if there's less to spend, then we need to look precisely for those big structural changes in the economy that the last Labour government shied away from. We have to tackle problems such as unfair pay at root, not just by spraying money um, at uh, poor employers by subsidising low pay. And in seeking radical economic change, we need to avoid the strategic error that we made after the war. We should embrace industrial democracy and take up every chance to reshape uh, economic relationships. Trade unions, I think, can't afford to stand aside as we did in 1945, because this time history would simply pass us by. And as even some conservatives recognise, industrial relations in many companies, in real companies, day to day, week to week, is often very good. Of course there are differences of interest and opinion, and imbalances of power still characterise the employment relationship, but there's also recognition of mutual interest in many areas, generating good, rewarding jobs, investing in skills, and tapping into the undoubted expertise and intelligence of the workforce. In the future, unions and working people need to be at the heart of the economy, having an effective voice, winning fairness, building the businesses that will deliver prosperity for decades to come. That poses a challenge to government, to business, to managers, but I make no apologies for that. We have too many complacent business leaders who run organisations that are coasting, who resort to command and control to avoid the challenge and inclusive decisions that we all need to take if we're going to raise our game. But most of all, industrial democracy does pose a challenge to us in the trade union movement. It implies a role that's more ambitious 
not just more ambitious, but more demanding than the one that we usually have now. It means accepting responsibility, moving out of a comfort zone of short-termism to taking the long view and championing the greater good. Now, we already play that role in the best workplaces, uh, but also in a whole range of policy areas from the environment, pension, skills, health and safety, where mutual advantage is clear to all to see. Of course, none of this, let me be clear, none of this means giving up on our defining purpose of winning a better, fairer deal for workers. The majority of EU countries now guarantee workers' seats on company boards. It doesn't stop those unions from fighting maltreatment or exploitation, nor from taking industrial action when they're left with no other option. So I've been frank about the challenges facing us in unions, but what about the Labour Party too? Well, it too needs to recognise that limited resources mean we need more, not less, structural change. And it needs to recognise that some of the electoral tactics and approaches that worked 10, 15 years ago are now as much old labour as what worked in 1945 or 1966. Labour instead needs to start from where people are, and the problems of stagnation, declining living standards and poor prospects now afflict a big majority of the electorate, whether they tick the traditional supporter box or not. So rather than a rainbow coalition of different promises and messages for different groups, Labour needs a compelling vision and lived values that demonstrate the benefits of the new approach. And while ministers would of course need to be clear about what they do when the red boxes arrive, the wider challenge is not to build a Labour Party encyclopedia of policies, but to rediscover the inspirational language of progressive change. Atlee's political genius was to give people a sense of hope, a clear route map out of depression, war and austerity towards the social and economic justice that they deserved. Rereading the 1945 manifesto, I was struck not just by the directness of the language, but the real relevance of the message now. There is criticism of the hard-faced men who controlled the banks, the mines, the big industries, and largely the press. It talks of how the interwar slumps were not acts of God or blind forces, but the sure and certain result of too much concentration, of too much economic power in the hands of too few. These were people who felt no responsibility to the nation. And the 1945 manifesto restates Labour's commitment to freedom in its most meaningful sense. It said, the Labour Party stands for freedom, but there are certain so-called freedoms that Labour will not tolerate. Freedom to exploit other people, freedom to pay poor wages and push up prices for selfish profit, freedom to deprive people of the means of living full, happy, healthy lives. Now, of course, this is a different era, and we may be fighting an economic war rather than recovering from a military one, 
but for Labour that sense of conviction is as necessary today as it was seven decades ago. I started this lecture with a quote from Jack Jones and I want to finish with one. He said of Attlee, his message was clear, forthright, honest, dignified and essentially humane. He was a great patriot and socialist. And it's that same clarity of purpose that we need now. I believe that the people of Britain are crying out for change, for a sense of hope about what the future holds for them and their families. In just six years, Clement Attlee transformed our society and our country. And if it's elected in 2015, Ed Miliband's Labour Party must do the same. We can face the future together. Thank you.